1: You're listening to the second and final part of Unexplained, Season 6, Episode 30 The Inextinguishable Fire Having successfully routed the English army On May 4th. Two days later, on May 6th, 1429, Joan led a small army to storm two more English forts, both of which were also successfully captured. That evening, with the Dauphin's army now having gained the upper hand in the battle for Orléans, Joan and her fellow soldiers enjoyed a riotous dinner together. Spirits were high, as Father Jean Pascarel, who by then had anointed himself as Joan's personal chaplain, took a seat by the godly child. It was hard to deny the wave of optimism that had swelled through the ranks since Joan's arrival, but as Pasquerel gazed round the room, he was troubled by the look on Joan's face as she stared off into the middle distance. What is it? he asked. Joan, who seemed to be in some other place entirely, finally snapped out of it. Tomorrow, she said, blood shall flow from my body above my breast. I will be wounded by a shaft, but I shall not die of it, and I will remove it with my bare hands. Pasquerel could only stare at her in disbelief. She'd been right before. There was no reason to doubt her now. At the time, the city of Orléans sat on the north bank of the Loire River. By May 6th, the English army had been forced to consolidate most of its forces at two major points on the opposite side of the river. A large turreted gatehouse, known as Les Tourelles, and a large earthen rampart, known as Boulevard, The French army was planning an assault on both of them for the following day. However, news of Joan's unnerving vision soon got back to her military superiors. With victory and the soldiers morale so finely in the balance, it was decided that Joan should stay behind at the camp, lest the unthinkable should happen. But Joan ignored their orders, By the afternoon, the assault had been progressing well. As all about, metal clashed on metal, and the anguished cries of men rang out. Joan found herself standing at the base of Les Tourelles gatehouse, helping to secure a ladder to scale the walls. When from out of nowhere, there came a whistle through the air, followed by a blood-curdling scream. The French soldiers looked on in horror, toward Joan, her face pale and stricken, her white armour quickly darkening with red, and the long shaft of an arrow now sticking out of her neck. As the seventeen-year-old Joan slumped to the floor, a group of compatriots quickly dragged her from the battlefield and rode her back to their camp. Before long, rumours began to spread That Joan had been killed. The news came as a shock to all the French soldiers, immediately eviscerating their previously unshakable confidence, while for the English soldiers a renewed sense of belief swept over them, that all was perhaps not divinely fated after all. But just as the English army seemed to have clawed back the advantage, a figure in white, their neck, thickly bandaged, was spotted approaching on a white steed. Joan was alive and had returned to finish what she'd started. Another cry went up among the French soldiers as they made one final push, repelling the English from the fort once and for all. By the end of the following day, all of the forts around Orléans had been captured by the Dauphin's army And the Siege of Orléans, as it would come to be known, had finally been lifted. Joan, the Maid of Orléans, as some would come to call her soon after, had delivered exactly what the voices had apparently promised. With Orléans secure, Joan travelled to nearby Loche, to meet with the Dauphin, hoping to convince him that now was the time for him to head to Reims and anoint himself the true King of France. The only problem was that getting there meant travelling through miles of anglo burgundy territory. At first, the Dauphin and his commanders were unsure about undertaking such a potentially dangerous journey wary of undoing all their recent gains. But as Joan continually reminded them, with God on their side, there was nothing to fear. And so in late June, the decision was made to proceed. 40,000 foot soldiers and 33,000 cavalry gathered in the town of Xi'an, and from there, on June 29th, 1429, the march began. Along the way, the army faced some resistance from towns that were either loyal to the English Crown or the Duke of Burgundy. Some were bribed to allow the Dauphin's army to rest and recuperate. Others were simply conquered. Plans were made to prevent the Dauphin and his army from entering Rams, but with the Duke of Burgundy, Philippe the Good who'd been tasked with keeping watch over the city, stuck in Paris at the time. In the end, the townspeople were powerless to resist. On Saturday, July 16th, with Joan leading the way, the Dauphin and his army marched into Reims. The following day, at Reims Cathedral, the stoic 17-year-old Joan watched on from the front of the assembly proudly displaying her white banner as the Dauphin was crowned King Charles the 7th of France, just as she had prophesied all those months ago. Despite a failed effort to take back Paris from English control soon after, Joan was heralded for all her services, and in December of that year, she and her family were all ennobled. By then, King Charles VII had returned to the Loire Valley, where he was joined by Joan, who continued to counsel him. But Joan was restless. She'd not yet driven the English completely from France, as she believed she was meant to do, and the voices hadn't stopped either. Shortly after being crowned king, Charles Seventh had negotiated a four-month truce with the Duke of Burgundy, Philippe the Good. This included ceding a number of towns back to the Duke in the hope of quelling any future military ambitions. However, the residents of those towns, many having no doubt been moved by this seemingly divinely inspired Joan, were reluctant to submit to him and so the Duke of Burgundy ordered that they be taken back by force. One such town was Compiègne, located about 50 miles to the north of Paris. In March 1430, Philippe the Good demanded the people of the city surrender and allow themselves to be taken over, or else he would invade. But the townspeople refused his offer. As it turned out, little did King Charles know, the Burgundians had no intention of stopping with the towns given back to them by his treaty. In fact, they planned to take control of most of the cities that lined the Oise River, with a view to once again helping secure the north of France for the English crown. Joan, however, had foreseen the danger possibly going behind her king's back, Joan marshaled 400 or so troops to help take on the Burgundian forces as they made their way to Compiègne. Joan, by then only 18 years old, and her army arrived at the town on May 14th. After getting involved in a number of minor skirmishes with the Burgundian forces over the next few days, By May 23rd, Joan and her army were eventually pushed back toward Compiègne. At some time around midday on May 23rd, with the Burgundians gaining the upper hand, despite Joan's protestations, a full retreat of French forces was ordered. As the soldiers hastily made their way toward the security of Compiègne's city walls, Joan gallantly put herself at the front of a rear guard, tasked with protecting the retreating soldiers as they headed for the city gates. With the Burgundian soldiers upon them, and still some way from the gate, Joan could only watch with horror as the city's drawbridge was suddenly raised leaving her stranded outside the city. Perhaps in those moments she reflected on the prophecy she'd made in March the previous year that she would be captured by Midsummer's Day of that year and perhaps felt an air of inevitability about what happened next. With nowhere to run, Joan and her troops were soon surrounded by Burgundian soldiers screamed for her to give herself up. Joan refused, but as she backed her horse away, a Burgundian crossbowman inched his own horse behind her, then grabbed her tunic and yanked her down into the mud. Unable to get back in her saddle, Joan had no option but to surrender. Joan was imprisoned at a castle in beaulieu le fontaine ten miles further north of Compiègne, and by all accounts, is said to have been treated reasonably well. True to her indomitable spirit, however, she refused to accept her fate. Over the next few months, Joan was moved between numerous prisons as she made continued efforts to escape, including at one time leaping out of a tower into a moat, only to be captured again having knocked herself unconscious when she hit the water. For all that she would achieved, and for what she represented to supporters of King Charles VII, it was only a matter of time before she ended up in the hands of the English Crown. In short, King Henry VI court feared Joan more than anyone else at the time. They feared the awe which she inspired feared the way she shook the church hierarchy in her apparent direct communication with God and hated her prolifically, a young woman who had dared to beat them. They could not put her to death for this, but they could have her tried as a witch and a heretic. In late 1430, she was moved to the town of Rouen, King Henry VI's headquarters in France and imprisoned to await her trial. And so we return back to that grand makeshift courtroom at the castle of Rouen in February 1431 as the pale and malnourished Joan, her wrists and ankles bound by chains, stands defiantly staring back at those sixty pairs of eyes, hungry for blood. Leading her trial was Bishop Pierre Couchon, ally to the English Crown. Couchon was charged with accusing Joan of the crimes of heresy, which was punishable by death, as well as blasphemy, through her wearing of traditional men's clothes, and for acting on what her accusers claimed to be demonic visions. What followed was a series of hearings lasting from February 21st through to the end of May, in which Joan, despite having no lawyers or any counsel at all, save for her apparent voices, is said to have displayed astonishing control in her answers, deftly avoiding saying anything that would unequivocally reveal her to be a heretic. Throughout it all, she also remained loyal to Charles, even though, despite everything she'd done for him, not wanting to be associated with the strange young woman accused of witchcraft and heresy, he refused to come to her aid. What came next remains unclear. On May 24th, Joan signed an abjuration, which in theory acknowledged that she could not be considered a heretic and was therefore spared the death penalty. Instead, she was sentenced to perpetual imprisonment and ordered never to wear traditional men's clothing again. Over the next few days, it is said that Joan's guards goaded her with unsuitable clothes and even forced her to wear them. Others, however, have suggested that Joan had deliberately continued to wear trousers on account of the better protection they afforded her from sexual assault. It's rumoured that a number of guards, and possibly even the Earl of Warwick, a loyal servant to King Henry VI, attempted to rape her while she was in captivity. Either way, Bishop Couchon soon received word of Joan's continued transgressions, and on May 28th, he and a handful of other clerics paid her a visit With Joan found to indeed still be wearing men's clothes, she is then said to have claimed that the voice she identified as St Catherine of Alexandria had been angry with her for signing the abjuration. It was clear then to Couchon and his colleagues that Joan was a remorseless, determined blasphemer who was beyond saving. The following day, It was decided by the ecclesiastical court that Joan had relapsed into heresy. She was then handed over to an English secular court where she was promptly declared a heretic and a witch and sentenced to death. On May 30th, 1431, a then 19-year-old Joan was led out of her prison, and taken to the Place de Vaumarchais, where a huge crowd had gathered. In the middle of the square stood a tall plastered pillar, surrounded by a large pyre of wood. Joan was led up to the pillar, then ordered to stop and wait, as her sentence was read out for all to hear. As the words of condemnation rang out through the square, Over the hush of the crowd, Joan openly sobbed as she forgave her accusers and asked them to pray for her and King Charles VII, the man who would one day be the ruler of all France, just as the voices had promised her. Joan was then grabbed by the executioner and placed against the pillar which had been made all the taller so that the whole crowd could witness the five-foot, two-inch Joan burn to death. As the torches were lit, Joan shouted for a crucifix. One was hastily fetched from a nearby church and brought back to her. Joan clasped it with her hands, the last thing she touched, before they were placed behind her and around the pillar and bound together. Then the pyre was lit. As the flames began to crackle and hiss, a local Dominican friar kept the crucifix where Joan could see it and quietly began offering the assurances of salvation, promising Joan that she would be saved in the eyes of God. As the flames grew higher, Joan demanded the friar speak louder so she could hear his words above the roar of the fire. The crowd gasped as Joan's clothes were set alight and she cried out in agony. As the fire continued to grow, its crackling and hissing merging with Joan's cries, she is said to have screamed the name Jesus six times before finally falling silent. Though Joan is thought to have died of asphyxiation Some time before the fire really took hold, her body was left to burn long after her death. However, her organs proved strangely resistant to the flames. It would take another two fires, with Joan's diminishing body dragged back and forth across hot coals before it was turned entirely to ash. Despite the loyalty to the English crown, of those who participated in Joan's execution, it is thought many were left afterward with the distinctly uneasy feeling that they had just participated in the burning of a saint. In an effort to erase all trace of Joan from the culture of France, it was decided to throw her ashes into the river Seine so no official place of mourning could ever be established and those who dared to speak fondly of the Maid of Orléans even in hushed tones faced strict and prompt punishment. However, though Joan was gone her prophecies continued to cast an unsettling shadow across the English held regions of France. At her trial in March of 1431, she one, she'd announced that within seven years the English crown would suffer a far greater defeat than it had at Orléans, stating that they would soon lose everything. Sure enough, on November 12, 1437, six years and eight months after Joan's declaration, the English army was finally driven out of Paris. Historians recognise this date as the beginning of the end for the English Crown's presence in France. The 1453 Battle of Castillon, another 15 years later, at which the English army was decisively beaten, is considered to mark the end of the Hundred Years' War, after which the English Crown has never once again seriously threatened the sovereignty of France. Four years previously, in November of 1449, Joan was posthumously acquitted of her crimes and remodelled as a martyr in the public consciousness. 450 years later, in 1909, she was beatified and in 1920 canonised as a saint, proving that although you can destroy the body, a legend, as a little harder to extinguish. Over the years, with the distance of time only further obscuring the real truth of just who Joan was and what it was exactly that she said or did, that legend has only continued to grow and morph into something far more potent than any one person could possibly hope to achieve in life. Many have questioned the various stories that have come to be associated with the one we now know as Joan or Jeanne d'Arc. The facts of the matter are that Joan or Jeanne d'Arc was not a name she used in life. Arc is not a real place and the words attributed to her an illiterate teenager are all second and third hand accounts. But perhaps now And even then, the truth never really mattered. What mattered was the story. The symbolism of what Joan came to represent. Because whether you believe she truly was a child of destiny, led by God to emancipate an entire nation, or not, for many people, just to believe it, helped to make that apparent destiny a manifest reality. To this day, her name continues to ring through the halls of history, a pealing bell of freedom, fortitude and courage. This episode was written by Ella MacLeod and Richard MacLean-Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard MacLean-Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, featuring stories that have never before been featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, among other bookstores. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.
0: Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at cheapcaribbean.com.